Are you a writer with a great screenplay just sitting on your desktop? Are you looking for written analysis of your work by experienced creatives? Are you trying to get industry professionals to read your work, but you don't know how to reach them? Then enter the Blue Cat Screenplay Competition. Created by veteran screenwriter Gordon Hoffman, the Blue Cat Screenplay Competition has helped unknown writers launch their professional careers for over 25 years. This year, the Blue Cat Screenwriting Competition will award $18,500 in cash, and everyone who enters will receive written analysis on their work, and getting feedback on your script is worth, like, a lot. The deadline to enter is October 30th, but if you miss it, you could still catch their late deadline on December 11th. Check them out on the social medias at Blue Cat Writers on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. So stop waiting to be discovered and send your feature screenplay, TV pilot, and short film script to Blue Cat today. And the deadline to enter is October 30th, but if you miss it, you can still catch their late deadline on December 11th, and you can use our code, all caps, B-C-H-A-R-D-23 for $10 off. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Russell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital and DVD. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. I'm currently in, I guess, pre-production. I don't know. Development slash pre-production on my first horror feature, Best Friends Forever. I'm a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week, we welcome program director of The Hash Innovative at Ryan Murphy TV, Sherry Page, on the show to talk about moving from casting to working with Ryan Murphy. But don't go away, because after that, we play another round of the game, probably. But first, Liz, how are you doing? Ah, how am I doing? (laughs) Well, okay, you and Eric went to Austin, and I think this is like the moment where I... Admit that I did not go. I did not go to Austin this weekend. And I maybe I should explain myself a little bit. Not that it's like that dramatic. The The flight was canceled the night before we we're going to leave. I was already packed, guys. I was already packed. The flight was canceled. And I had this feeling of like, this is your chance. You could stay home. You could be with your kid. And I got really, really anxious about leaving to go to Austin. And so I took the chance. And I took the cancellation and I stayed home. And I'm really trying to be super honest about it because I think this is something, it's called mom guilt and it's real and it exists for a lot of people who aren't just moms. I'm sure it's called something else in a more diplomatic world. And I had a lot of it and I just felt so relieved when I knew I was staying home with my kid. I'm really sad that I missed hanging out with you, Ulrich, in the flesh. That I missed hanging out with Maria, Susie, Talbot. Like, there's a bunch of people I was going to see moderating a panel. But it was the right decision for me. And now I just need to figure out when I'm going to travel and when I'm going to say yes to. Because apparently, it's, it like sends me into high anxiety when I overcommit to something. When I really just want to stay home with my kid and family. I'm going to press you on this a little bit. Yeah. Just, I'm curious. So, you know, I had like the feeling like I didn't want to leave my daughter either. Like I was like looking at her beautiful face and just like, oh, like she doesn't know I'm going. She thinks nothing. She just she thinks I'll be here in the morning like I normally are, you know, and it was it was hard to go, especially like, you know, putting her down to sleep and then being gone in the morning when she wakes up is like not fun. And but, you know, it's funny for me, it wasn't like guilt. 
Like I didn't feel guilty. I felt like more like I'm just sad that I'm missing out spending time with her. And then also, I guess the feeling like I'm letting her down, which, you know, obviously I'm not letting her down, but that's guilt. You know, that's guilt. Right. I guess that's guilt. (laughs) I guess that's the guilt part, (laughs) which is crazy because it's too. I mean, like, I I don't want to put judgment on your guilt, but for my guilt, I think part of it, at least 10 percent, is a little bit irrational. Right. It's like the kid's going to be fine. A little bit of a difference between us is like, I did go on trips when my kid was, you know, six months, one year or whatever. I went on trips for Sundance. I went on trips for my film festival run and I did it solo and I just pumped and, you know, I like, I figured it out. Once they develop a little munchkin personality, I think it's a lot harder. Like Mm. Colin's like telling me jokes in the morning and he's like telling me about his day and his weird like understanding of the world. And I think that's part of it is like, I don't want to miss one anecdote, but I don't know if it's guilt or it's just priorities. Like, I wrote a letter to Eric being like, I'm sorry, Eric. I'm so sorry. (laughs) But I also was like, I really want to prioritize my family. And I should have just told everyone earlier in the process that that was important to me in this case. And that's the real bummer is not that I decided not to go, but I decided not to go last minute. So sorry, Eric. And sorry, Eric. And I'll just be like a little bit more confident in what I want to do next time someone asks me. Well, like I said before, I don't think you really need to apologize. Like, I totally understand. You know, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Like, I share the feeling to some degree. So, like, I completely get it. But like, yeah, for me, I guess it's like this thing where I I know that I'm going to have to deal with this throughout my life as a filmmaker. And so... It's like almost like ripping off the Band-Aid. You're also right. Like, I think as she gets older, it's going to get harder. I mean, I do feel like I got back. And like when I got her up in the morning on Monday, she was like, she responded a little differently than she normally does. Like she was like a little bit more, a little different than the last time I saw her. And I was like, oh, I missed a weekend of growth. Oh my God. You know, like she was just a little bit more expressive than I, you know, usually she's just so like, yeah, just like a little baby. And then like, then she's like going, she's like saying little fake words that I don't understand. And like, you know, pointing and like saying like, up, up. And then she's like learning sign. She's been learning sign language a lot lately. So her signing is getting better every day. Mm. So, you know, now that she can tell us more, it's like, oh my God, it's so funny. Like, like we did trick or treating and she didn't, we didn't go with her or anything. She's too young, but we had her like at the door watching as the trick or treaters came up and she's like in her little unicorn outfit. <laughs> and every time a trick or treater left, she just turned back to us and she'd be like, more. More like I want more <laughs> trick or treaters. I want to see more people. She just loved to stare at all the people coming up, you know. And and then she's trying to help hand out candy. It was adorable. I'm curious. Well, okay. I agree that there should be ripping off of the Band-Aid for some. But what's funny is that like I'm actually trying to build the rest of my career around enabling my behavior. Like I'm doubling (laughs) down on this behavior. And I'm like, well, how can I just continue to make content in a way where I get to put him to bed at night? And we've talked about this ad nauseum. We don't need to go into it too much. But I just think it's funny that our responses are completely different where I'm like, I'm just going to 
create a whole new, I'm making it very hard on myself. I'm going to create a whole new <laughs> indie film ecosystem in order to cater to my, my desire to stay with my son and to see him as much as possible. Whereas like I'm going against the tide in doing that and right. doing something that's incredibly absurdly ridiculous. Right. And you're like, I'm going to adapt and make the most out of the situation. Right. Like, yeah. So I, it's two different responses. We'll see which one or hopefully both of them succeed. <laughs> right. But how, how are, let's, let's move out of this. How are you? How was your weekend? I'm doing great. Yeah. It was really exhausting. Oh my God. I mean, you know, fly in. I mean, I left really early on Friday morning. Got got in at like one o'clock Austin time or something. And then, yeah, it was sort of just a mad rush from there. Like I, you know, I, I had to do some work prepping for the moderation that I did or the moderating I did on Saturday mornings. So like, you know, I, I filled in for Liz moderating this panel. I I realized like, oh God, like I, I know who these people are. I read the description, but like besides that, like I don't have anything prepped. And I was like, oh, are there questions? And then Liz was like, no. And I was like, okay, yeah, all right. Well, we'll, we'll do it. And then Liz helped me write the question and everything and it was fine i did find out when i got there that they do provide questions but they do they, yeah they didn't they didn't give them to us like they had their questions you know that they had you know originated but no they didn't get to us <laughs> so, oh, that's not wait so okay i'm like this was or, worth or, getting or into maybe, or maybe it was like a boiler boilerplate questions maybe. or something that they yeah. that they provide you know in, in their like moderator handbook or something but like yeah we didn't get any of that so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, but it was, it was really fun. I had a blast. I met so many people. I basically, it was like being at filmmaker Vegas for me where like, you just don't ever really go to sleep until like the night is over at like three or 4am. And then you wake up really early and you do it all over again, except at Vegas, you don't usually wake up early. You just sleep till one, but like here it was like, yeah, going to sleep at, th at three. You're up at seven. You're going to sleep at four. Guess what? You're up at eight. It's great. So it was really intense, but it was really fun. I met, I don't know if I could say hundreds of people, but I would say I met at least a good 50 people, maybe more. It was, it was a lot of people really fantastic. Like just like, I know, you know, we were talking about like some of the disorganization, which, you know, is definitely a part of that, but I feel of like any festival of any conference, right? True, true. But like, I think what they did really well was the planning of where everything was because it was like this hub of like four blocks where everyone just mm -hmm. hangs out. And so like, you're basically just running into filmmakers all the time, you know, and then like, you're in a line for a panel, you meet filmmakers, you're, you know, walking out of a panel, you meet filmmakers, you're sitting in a panel, you're meeting filmmakers, you're just meeting filmmakers and writers everywhere. It's like just writers, writers, writers all day long. And I met so many people. I have a stack of cards on my desk of everybody I have to email that I met. And so I'm basically trying to work through this list and following up with people and saying hello and thank you for whatever, meeting me, blah, 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 or the advice or something. So yeah, it was really great. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really, it was just a really fun experience. It was probably like the most fun I've had at any festival ever. And you know, I didn't even go see any movies because there's just no time. There's no time for movies. Like, and you don't really want to be at movies either. I don't think necessarily because the panels are where you really meet people and you learn. Like, you're you can introduce yourself to the panelists afterwards. You can meet your fellow, you know, audience members. Like, everyone's roaming the halls. You, I ran to a writer friend of mine, Johnny Gilligan, who was there. The actor from your movie. From my movie, yeah. So he uh, he's also an extremely good sci-fi writer, and he had. 
placed two scripts in the top 10 or something. And then he had a pitch and then he got into the top 10 of the pitches too. So like, he's like, yeah, he's all these, this guy should call him top 10, John. He's like top 10, everything. So yeah, it was just really fun. And then like, you know, of course, Eric knew a lot of people who he introduced me to and, you know, bumped into some people and yeah, it was just really, really, I couldn't, I can't speak higher about this, this film festival. I would say everyone should go, especially if you're a writer. Austin and, and film it, festival. Austin I don't think film we even, even said the full formal <laughs> <laughs> yeah the austin film festival is definitely the place to be and uh, i feel like for directors too because mm. there's so many writers there and what do us directors need more than anything writers so it was just really great yeah i wish i i asked shane black a question during his closing remarks panel and uh the answer wasn't what i wanted or the greatest i think but i wish i had found him afterwards and asked him and i was walking away from the event like after maybe 20 minutes of or something of talking to people and i'm i'm writing you guys telling you about the shane black experience and he just zooms past me down the street and i totally if i had seen him coming i could have stopped him but then like people right behind me would try to stop him to say hello and he just like whizzed by them because he was obviously you know in a hurry somewhere and i was like well maybe that wouldn't have gone so well if i had stopped him at that moment i did want to follow up with him and just see like you know like is it really that like is it really because i asked him oh how do you make your second feature film and he was like like who made the movie and i was like i did (laughs) it's like where did it get released i was like it's on you know apple tv itunes and all the digital places he's like do you have an agent and i was like no he's like that's your problem (laughs) i'm like okay great well that's not helpful and then he's like okay let's just Putting that aside, let's just see who out here has agents and managers. Who out here? And then like three people raise their hand. Like, how'd you get your agent? And it's just like some stupid answer about like, oh, I'm friends with. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think that person might have said they queried. This was another thing I learned from the film festival is that there's like these two opinions. Like, you know, sending out query letters to managers and agents is a complete waste of time. You're a moron for doing it. Sending out query letters is why I have my manager or agent. I heard both these but things. It's different for writers than it is for directors. Like if you have like eight scripts and you are querying, that makes sense to me. I'm pro querying if you have con- right. like a good amount of content to pitch. But if you're a director and you're like, rep me, I ha- I don't do commercials. I do indie features, right? Like that's tough. That's a tough sell. Yeah, I guess. I mean, a lot of these people who who were querying like had like one script at the time, you know, or, wow. or maybe some of them had more, you know. But it wasn't all the classic like I have five features in a pilot, you know. It was it wasn't all that. That's what you know? I would presume. That's interesting. Yeah, it was. And it was a lot of a long game. It's like some of them were like it was usually long game querying. Like you query like you know once and then like you get some no's and then you just keep on following up with the people who gave you no's until and like keeping them updated on your career like oh i did this hooray i did this hooray like every four months five months or whatever you know and then eventually you know they're like oh you did enough that i care let's have a meeting you know and then it's like that was one way it worked out and then another one was like you know just did 30 or 40 
you know, and then like you, you get, you hear back a few from a few and then maybe you get one or two meetings, you know, I did 12, heard nothing. But then one thing that was funny. So I, I just looked the other day, like, so I did it through LinkedIn and I like basically would try to re- like all the people that I'm seconded, basically, I tried to reach out and be like, send a little message and like, you know, ask them to be my friend. So <laughs> I didn't get any responses from any of the messages, but a couple of them are my friends now. So it's like, mm, maybe that's the door open to message them again. To or like, to get hey. another second, like to reach oh, out yeah. to, to expand the network of seconds. Maybe. But yeah, I could I could always now follow up with those people and be like, because I, I reached out to these all, all before the movie came out. And yeah. so now I can follow up and be like, well, the movie came yeah. out. We got 75% fresh on Ryan Tomatoes. We got blah, blah, blah. This really great review from this person. And, you know, we're doing really great. Love for you to watch it. Blah, blah. You know, you could you could do that. So I I very supportive of you. What I'm not supportive of is Shane Black trying to dissuade people from making a second feature if they don't have agents or managers. That's a problem. <sighs> yeah. Well, the thing with that Shane Black is like he doesn't understand that he doesn't get a movie it. for less than five million dollars. Like yeah. for him, that movie is impossible. And then he also went on a rant about how everything on Netflix is like garbage and like looks bad and and like made for two dollars is what he said. I was like, Shane, you don't understand, bro. Like every Netflix movie is made for between between one to five million dollars or more they don't make they don't accept things at, at like under a million dollars yeah, also like what so, are you watching there's fantastic stuff on netflix i know, I know. whatever I mean, man hey, he's just so funny he's just such an old man and i i, I think he's great <laughs> he had a lot of great advice yeah a lot of wonderful things to say lots of like really encouraging words for the room but i think he's just an old man and you know it's not the same anymore and i was talking to some writers about that afterwards it's like is his world that he grew up in that he came up in it doesn't exist anymore like that hollywood is gone like it's a completely new different hollywood now and you know i think he's dealing with that best said he can but you know i just like yeah it's i don't think that kind of advice of like how to get started or how i thought i thought asking like how to get your second feature made i thought that would be like i thought he might have something interesting to say about it but i think maybe it was just a misguided question for a person who's way too old to answer no don't victim (laughs) blame don't do no it's shane black is the issue and he's he's being he's too he's too entrenched in the system to really give good advice to a true indie creator the last thing I want to say about it is I was, you know, walking back to the hotel and then I'm walking and this guy's there who's like, a, I think he's a volunteer at the festival. And he's like, hey, yo, you're the guy, right? The alternate guy. And I was like, yeah, that's me. He's like, oh, I'm checking out your trailer, man. It's awesome. And Aww. I was like, oh, you were in the, you were just in the Shane Black thing. He's like, yeah, man. Oh, you should. Did you talk to him? Did you, did you talk to him afterwards? I was like, no, I, I didn't. I was just, I didn't talk. Oh, you should have talked to him. Oh, you could have watched your movie. That, that would have been great. I was like, oh, that, yeah. Yeah, it's really sweet, <laughs> but it was like kind of amazing. We had a wonderful conversation. Shout out to Jacoby. Really great meeting you. If you're listening, I told him about the podcast. Of course, <laughs> everyone I met got a podcast card. Yes. So hopefully there's some new listeners out there who met me this weekend. And hello to anyone who met me. You were all fantastic. Sorry if I was a little overly energetic. I met a really wonderful writer, JP, who had won for best comedy horror script. So I'm going to try to get his horror script into my hands. I want to read it. And then I met a, a filmmaker who's also a storyboard artist for Blumhouse and she made her first feature and she had a really fantastic story about how she got hired to direct her first feature, which is like, I'm pretty sure that maybe we've never had that before where someone gets paid to direct their first feature. 
Right? Do you remember anybody who's done that? What, on the was show? that Laura Moss, just for what it's worth? No. Oh, okay. I don't know. I don't think so. I don't know. I'm Second feature, maybe, but not not first. Well, let's let's get whoever this person is on the show. Kate. Kate something. I don't have her card. I have the blurriest photo of her badge in my phone. <laughs> That's I mean, how I, that might work. You could also put no, it on Twitter and be like, do you know no, this person? I know. I found her already. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> that was the, the thing that was so, so weird. <laughs> that was the weird awkward interaction. Like we were like talking to this person. I was like, oh, here's my card. He's like, oh, I don't have a card. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll find you. I'll hunt you down. I'll find you. And then Liz was, uh, Maria was like, uh, I won't. <laughs> and, and we're not sure if he was terrified because I said, I will hunt you down. Or if he was more terrified because Maria said, I won't. But the look he gave us was like, you are murderers coming to kill me. Stay away. <laughs> I was like, dude, I was just kidding. Uh, anyways, oh my God. Uh, I probably shouldn't say I'll hunt you down to anyone. I think that's. I mean, yeah, I think you're with creative people. I think that they could take a joke, hopefully. <sighs> yeah, I don't know. It's just it's such a common thing to say that I, f- I felt like it was so harmless. <laughs> like, how could anyone possibly take that seriously? But I mean, I don't know. I'm a big guy. Maybe I'm a little overpowered. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Uh, anyways, I think we should move on. <laughs> but this, it was really fun, people. That's all I'm Aww. saying. I had a great time. Um, hopefully, everybody who met me had, uh, you know, I didn't freak them out or anything. But I think I think they were all good conversations. Well, so. How about this challenge? Because this time, last time it worked when we did a challenge. If you met Ulrich at Austin Film Festival, send us a note. Just say yeah. hi. We want to know if you're listening. <laughs> we want to yeah. know if you were freaked out by him or not. <laughs> or if you were amused. Just tell us exactly what meeting Ulrich for the first time was like. Yeah. The, oh, the other thing I'll say is like, you know, there's people are really good at being at these parties. I'm not very good at it because I don't go to them very often, but like people are really good at ending conversations and moving on to the next conversation. I'm terrible at that. I cannot end a conversation for the life of me. So I'll, I'll thank everyone who was very good at ending conversations. And I, I try to take notes for the next time I want to end a conversation. Yeah. Amazing. And it's funny because it's like, it's not like a, an offensive thing. It's like, yeah, we're here to meet a ton of people. You can't talk to one person for an hour. You know, you have to like keep it going. So yeah, just really, I learned a little bit about party etiquette at the at this <laughs> festival too. Well, and if you want to hear more about party etiquette, don't forget to support us on Patreon. <laughs> Do you like that? Do you like that yes, meta joke? It was very good. <laughs> www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. And I'll hand it over to you for Jambox.io. Yeah, and also don't forget to check out Jambox.io, which is a new royalty-free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues. Their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood-level films, working with directors like Michael Bay and Martin Scorsese, and they even offer customized plans to fit your needs, which is pretty freaking awesome. So check out Jambox.io today. We have a code, MMIH podcast. Use that when signing up. But without any more further delay, here is Liz's chat with Sherry Page. All right, Sherry Page, can you give us your one minute bio? How did you get to where you are right this second? Thank you for having me, Liz. I can't even believe I can do this in one minute now. So here you go. So I am the program director for Ryan Murphy's Half Initiative. I've been doing that for the past three years. I'm going to go backwards. Before that, I worked at Film Independent, where I ran their Global Media Makers program, which was for international filmmakers, mainly from the Arab world um, and South Asia, to come to LA for residency. Before that, I worked for Megan Ellison to Annapurna, consulting on programs she wanted to start. Before that, I worked at 
Outfest Film Festival, and I started the program I'm most proud of, which is Outset, the LGBTQ Young Filmmakers Program for Queer Youth. And it's still going today, 12 years later. And before that, I worked in casting and television on some pretty big shows. Californication was one of them on Showtime for Felicia Fasano, who's an amazing casting director. And before that, I was a middle school teacher for six years in, in Chicago, where all my students, it was a very Greek and Italian neighborhood. So they're like, yo, I don't need to go to school. My dad has a hot dog stand. And I taught health education. So sex ed, drugs, you name it. And I coached the boys and girls basketball teams, of which we had 16 championships while I was there. And before that, I was in college and high school. And I don't remember any of that. (laughs) Okay, well, we have to start there. Okay, there's a million questions that we could ask. But how did you go from being a teacher to going casting? Why casting specifically? And why I assume it also was a location switch from Chicago to Los Angeles. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Of course, I, I got my master's in film in Chicago at Columbia College. And then I was offered a scholarship to go to LA for the summer for a directing program. And so I went and I never left. And that was on the CBS Radford lot. And on that lot, they were shooting CSI. And my thought was like, if I could just get a job that pays me, I can stay. Mm-hmm. And which is a lot harder than you think when you move to LA with it's and you moved to LA with a master's and a teaching certificate, but you have to start at the bottom again, which is pretty amazing. Like, I think that's one of the most fascinating things about LA. And I love telling like emerging talent that like, no, you can't just be that you have to start here. I mean, you can, if you come from money, but I did not. So well, and sometimes you need that terminal degree to start at the bottom. Like, that's what's so nuts about it. It's crazy. And so I wandered into the casting trailer for CSI and I asked if they needed an intern and I would work for free. And at that time you could wander into people's trailers and you not get in trouble, like, or feel like a stalker or intense security. And so I would sort all of the headshots. They would come in in hard copy and I would put to the side. They let me put to the side for the people that have like a couple lines, the ones that I liked. They let me videotape the sessions and, and give feedback And I really liked it because obviously I had gone to film school. So for me, this was getting to witness how they chose cast to to hear directors give notes. And so this this was a perfect spot for me to be in order to, to start my career off. So, you know, it's interesting, all that money spent on film school and I would go if I could go back. Obviously, I would. I'm glad I have my master's, but I learned more in L.A. in a year than I ever learned in film school about how the industry runs itself and how to direct and how to work with actors and how to set up a shot. It's so funny. Even I just I'm thinking about this because I've been thinking about this a lot lately, even back then working in casting, because now this is like I want to say it was 2005, four, maybe all the directors were white male, white men. And there would always be like one woman. And it was always the same, like four women. So it's just interesting how much things have changed since then. So anyways, that's how I ended up in casting. And you went to film school to learn what about film to direct, to write, to produce, or what were you attracted to? And then how has that thread kind of 
inspired you from job to job? It's it's so interesting how, as you know, how everything connects. When I when I originally went to college in Southern Illinois University, I was a journalism major, and in my head, I was going to be Oprah, and that that was it for me. I knew it like I was going to be Oprah. It wasn't the best school to go to for that, so I sort of I figured I needed to get out of there as fast as possible, and so I picked education. I picked health because at the time I was really, I mean, <laughs> at the time I was really into working out and being healthy and. And and I am not able to do that as much now because I have two year old twins. But at the time, and so I thought I'm going to do that because I also really missed coaching. And so I'm like, if I become a teacher, then I can coach sports. So I had this in my head that that was what I was going to do in order to like. So, anyways, at, when I was teaching middle school, I would instead of like actually teaching classes, we would make like PSA videos on like how to brush your teeth. And I had this little high camera and I was always a film buff. So after about six years of doing that and making, I mean, we were like making music videos. We were putting on shows. We had dramatic black and white films about not doing drugs and they would make them. They would produce them. I would edit them for them, but they would make them. And I realized, you know, I'm really interested in, in filmmaking and I'm, I'm getting a little bored of teaching. So I I need to make that move now or never. And so I ended up going back in school. But when I went back, I was much more interested in documentary filmmaking because in my head, I was still thinking journalism and telling stories, but of real people. So when I got accepted into film school, it was because I pitched doing a documentary about the AIDS cycle ride from Minneapolis to Chicago that I was going to follow this specific group of people for my thesis film. So I was a documentary filmmaker throughout all the film school. When I when we were forced to make narrative films, I would make dark comedies. I would make really dark comedies. And I was that I was definitely there was 11 people in my class and I was definitely somewhere in the middle. And that's kind of how my whole life has been that I was never the best. I was never the worst. And so when you're in the middle, you get a little bit lost. And I'm a middle child. So no one's really taking you under their wing to help you get better. No one's really like pumping you up because they know you're the next big thing. So I became someone that was like, and I've always been this way. Like I was not, I was always most improved. I was voted most improved my entire life. (laughs) And I think Hollywood for me was just like, for me, it was like a place where I felt like I could really make it. I think we all have that idea in our heads. Like I could really make it as this person. And I didn't quite know what that was yet when I started working in casting. And I mean, to go from casting, I'm trying to, I don't know if you went to Annapurna next, but you eventually made it to Annapurna after casting, which is, by the way, like what an insane CV you have, like just hearing the highlights of Annapurna during that, like the golden years of Annapurna, Megan Ellison having the budget, I assume, to do whatever she wanted. And then going from that to Film Independent to, to Ryan Murphy, like I think... I just really want to know what it was like working with Meg Allison and having the budget. I mean, what did you do as a consultant? She has, first of all, she's so interesting. (laughs) And, you, you know, I think a lot of people, she's an enigma to a lot of people, but the reason I went to work there is because she wanted to start her own mentorship program. And at that time, no one was really doing that. Mm. This was before 2016, right? So this is when the studios didn't have a mandate and there was film independent, there was Sundance, you know, there was Outfest, there was other programs like in LA, like ghetto film school in New York, where it was like cultivating underrepresented talent. And she really liked ghetto film school, but she had this really, really big idea 
idea of a program she wanted to start that was much more digital focused. So it was online learning. And it was like a mixture of like what would be EPK and film school. So her idea was a lot about like, how do we, it's almost like master classes from the different departments on set. Or like what Sundance collab is doing right now, maybe? A little bit, a little bit. Her idea was really big though, because it was like, it, it was also like portals. So it's like, mm-hmm. as you're going through, if you're like, oh, I'm interested in that department, you can click on it and go into that portal and learn about that. It was, it was such a big idea and she knew that. So I was trying to consult her on how to do that. And it, it was such a big idea that, it was so much money that we ended up like sort of putting it together and then it it got it ended up getting tabled. I mean, she would have had to hire like an entire team to do that, right? And at the, that time she was making really great movies, but it wasn't gonna be in her realm of world of budget to to create a whole team to do that. The other the other tricky part was she told me a lot about what other filmmakers and directors were telling her like on set. And she's like, how do I get that on camera so other people can learn? And I was like, you can't, they're never going to say those things on camera. So it was interesting. Like it was a very good learning experience, but I, I ended up at, at that time. She also gave Vidiot's the video store, the famous iconic video store in Santa Monica money to stay open. They were, they were, their doors were about to close and they were about to lose that property. And and this was going to be the last of the video store. And at that time, I I don't know if you remember, but Tim's story had draft house and he was sort of like taking on the collections of video stores and putting them in his theaters. And that was really interesting to her. So I was there for about a year and she's so interesting because she's so she's so creative and really intelligent and really good at numbers. Like she kind of hits this trifecta and she's like a savant at the same time. So working for her, just watching the way she works was really, really interesting to see such a creative person that young. I don't, I don't think she was 30 yet at that time. So that was, it was incredible. It was incredible. I mean, it's crazy, but it was incredible. (laughs) Well, I'm definitely pulling out this thread, right? Of like, of consulting, of empowering, of um, engendering environments for creators that uh, allow for more inclusivity and also allow for more experimentation. Like I'm seeing this kind of thread throughout. Let, let's let go to the Ryan Murphy TV situation that you're in right now, working for, you know, being head of, a nat- of, head of half initiative. What is that for people for like the mole in uh, underground who doesn't know what that is? Can you define it? Yeah, I'm I'm glad you asked that because not everybody knows what the program is and it's it's a very very special program. So Ryan Murphy started the Half Initiative in 2016 when he was filming American Crime Story, the O.J. Simpson story. And he tells this story online. You can like Google him telling this story, but I'll just give you the short version. But he was he was slating the directors for all of those episodes. And he knew that he wanted a woman director for the episode that was called Marsha, 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 which was mm-hmm. the Marsha Clark episode. And that woman that he hired had, I think she got injured. She, her knee or her ankle or something and was now unable to direct that episode. And he went to his Rolodex and realized he really didn't know any other women directors. And he had this moment of like, he needed to change the way he was thinking about hiring. So when Half Initiative was born in 2016, and that was early on before 
Trump got in office and before me too, that was all coming. And then, so for, for him, it was very easy to say like, this change needs to be huge. It's about how I'm hiring. So how do I do that? So number one, it was about hiring. So he set hiring goals for himself that by 2020, across all of his shows, at least half of his directing slate would be women or minorities or people of color. And he ended up hitting it by 2017. And exceeding it, it was like 60% on each show. And so it forced him to go outside of his box and make phone calls and meet new people so that he could, you know, get really great people who were out there, of course, were here and give them, you know, episodes on his shows. And building on that also started the director shadowing program. So now he's got all of these shows and he's got a deal with Netflix and he's doing all these shows for FX. So now the director shadowing program allows anybody to apply. You have to be over the age of 18 to shadow a director on one of our shows from prep through production and post on one episode. So that is like a whole selection process. And it's all specifically for women, BIPOC, minorities, LGBTQ plus people to apply and people that have not yet had access to episodic television. So you can't have already directed an episode of television. So those were the two things going hand in hand was the hiring goal. And here's how he's going to support that hiring goal, because eventually, obviously, people that went through that program got hired to direct on some of his shows. There's been a couple people each year of that program and and a couple people that have come in have gone off, directed other television and come back. <clears throat> and so that's that's what the half initiative. Our, our mission is to really bolster storytelling behind the camera by showing that, you know, there are all of these groups of people that deserve to be working behind the camera that have been traditionally underrepresented. And how did you like had you heard about it before you came on board and Maybe it seems obvious why you would join the team and why you would lead the charge, but maybe say it out loud for those who, again, are are this mole underneath the ground who don't understand how important these things are. Yeah. I mean, for me, I saw this opportunity as they were doing everything I love doing. And not every job I've had is checked off the fulfillment. You know, the things that where I'm like, you know, you want to always be using your skill set to the greatest capacity. And I've done a lot of jobs where I can do them, but I'm missing certain pieces of, of things that are dear to me or that I love doing. And I think we've all felt that at some point in our career. So when this came along, what they were already doing are things that I'm passionate about. So the job was that I was going to go through the selection process and find the directors. Then I was going to be on set with them, which I really missed is that like creative team environment of being on set. I was going to be on set with them. And then I was going to elevate the programs and induce like quality control, like make sure everything's really organized, which I love, like I'm very type A, you know, in that way, like I want things done a certain way. I want there to be a book book of how we're doing it and everyone's like going to know exactly what's going to happen and sort of going in and making relationships with like even just the AD so they're not they don't hate us or hate our program like they enjoy it so sort of like quality control on both sides which I really enjoy doing and then saying what else can we do which I love doing which is why I started added the PA intensive program like hey we're we're 
changing things up here. Let's bring some things in up, up here. Let's now start bringing PAs in that have never had the opportunity so that things start to kind of come together. But yeah, so that they they had actually called me because I came recommended from someone that had interviewed, which was a great feeling to get that phone call because I had heard about the program. I knew when it was an amazing program. I'm a big fan of Ryan Murphy and his shows. And I understood what he was trying to do. And I understood that I could be an asset to that as a woman, as a queer woman, as someone that has always been underrepresented and always had to fight and always been most improved, never the best. Like, and I, 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 I realized that I wasn't going to be a producer or a filmmaker very early on, but that I was, I got more satisfaction out of pushing people into the place where they could get there. So it was like, for me, it was like opening doors, plucking people up and putting them in a space where they could succeed to me was more, was more a, a joy than actually being a part of creating something because I feel like a producer in my own right. I'm producing mentorship. That's, that's very Oprah of you. I just wanted to add. See? And now <laughs> I'm also like walking around getting the impact of their stories and taking pictures of them and posting them. And I'm like, you know, doing those little Oprah interviews. I get to do virtual workshops and pretend I'm Oprah. So I'm, I'm my own version of that. And so I feel like I'm here, like I've arrived. Like, I don't know. It's just all we can do is is make it better and do more things. So it feels really good. I feel like you never meet someone who really loves their job and you seem like you do, which is beautiful. Can you talk a little bit about the application process from the perspective of, of, of an applicant? What do they go through? What's it like? Sure. We This past year, we received about 1,300 applications. And like I said, it's open to everybody once a year. It's typically open in the whole month of January or the whole month of June. And you can go on our website, halfinitiative.com to look in and see when that's opening. All the information is there. But ultimately, when you apply, there's three things you have to submit. You have to submit you're like a one page bio about yourself. And then you have to submit a statement of interest, which is your letter of intent stating why you want to be a part of this program, which I feel like is one of the hardest things for people to write because a lot of people just rewrite their bio mm. and they don't understand what they need to say in that. And so I'll come back to that in a second because I think that, that I can really help people understand what they should write for that. And then you also submit up to three links to works that you've directed. Or some people are editors or producers. They can submit also like work that you've edited because you may also be trying to transition back into directing or out of producing and out of editing. So we're, we're looking at your body of work, right? So it's okay if you have one short film and that one short film is absolutely amazing. And you know your track is episodic because there's a lot to learn. And it's great if you've had three features that have gone through Sundance, but you're still knocking on that door and can't get into the episodic world. So there's also that range of people that we're looking at. So once all the applications come in, we go through all those applications and we end up interviewing anywhere from 150 to 200 people. Now it's on Zoom. I used to be in person. We interview them and then we're placing as many of them as we can on as many shows that we have. So for example, this year we have like, I think eight shows and probably close to 80 spots, right? So 
that means we can take in about 80 people. 90% of our directors will take on a shadow. So if they don't, it's because maybe it's the first time they're directing television and I wouldn't give them a shadow anyway. Or maybe it's the first time they're directing in the Ryan Murphy world and they just want to focus on that. So they get placed on a show. They get a couple months notice. They get a stipend for around $3,000 while they're there in case you know they're taking time off work or not working or if they need childcare or just need compensation of some kind. And they get all their meals taken care of. And you just literally have to have like a car and be able to get to where they're shooting, where they're prepping and in all of our locations. Should I go back to the statement? Yeah, I I was about to do that. Yes, please do. Okay. So let's say you're just reading an application. It says statement of interest and it doesn't say give you bullet points. I can tell you for whatever program you're submitting to, this is the letter that gets them to keep going through your application. Yes, your bio is like your career and your accolades and sort of who who you are or where you're from, which also needs a really strong first line or first two lines about that. And I actually, I should read one that somebody wrote. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it while I'm just their first line of their bio that got me to go, "Uh uh-huh. Yep. That's, that's perfect. So I'm going to, I'm going to say her name because she won't mind either. Her name's Tiwana Ricks and she just shadowed on 911 and she shadowed Marita Grabiak. And this was her first line of her bio. I grew up in Gramercy, Louisiana, an industrial farming town of 6,000 people in Southeast Louisiana. I was brought up in a big, loud, black Creole matriarchy. For 20 years, I've been a working actor. I mean, like, I was like, I know who she is, Hmm. right? Like I picture her. I, I understand. And that's just her bio. That's just her bio. So now I'm like, I've got her. I've got her in my head. I picture her in that place. I don't necessarily know what she looks like, but I know her now as a person. And then she tells me her accomplishments in her bio in terms of her career. That's your bio. That's what it should be. One or two lines about who you are as a person and then your career. Statement of interest is very, very different. For me, the statement of interest is who you are as a person and an artist. That's bullet point number one. Who are you as a person and and an artist? Okay. Number two is... Why do you need this mentorship? Why? So I need to know why you want to be a part of this program, why I should pick you, why I should open this door. I need to understand that you maybe don't know anybody, that maybe you've been doing this and you've been doing that, and you still need this to get to the next level, right? And then I need number three, I need real specifics about what your areas of weaknesses are and strengths. So if I understand that you've never seen or worked in episodic. So for you, you you know, and you've made all these films, but you have no idea how that prep works, what goes into episodic, that's helpful for me, right? And then number four is I really need that inspiring dialogue that you want to share with me about where you will go with this, what it would mean to you to have this opportunity. Also, you know, sort of like, what are the, where do you see yourself directing? What are the shows? And it's, and you should never be like, I've been the biggest fan of Ryan Murphy my whole life. But even if you're like, I know that if I do this, I will see myself directing on the shows I love, like Abbott Elementary or whatever it may be. I want to hear that. I want to hear that you feel like this is going to, you know, be a game changer for you. I, that, that's my personal opinion. Going back to you saying, you encouraging people to share their vulnerabilities, what they need, what they want. I think it's interesting because most of these 
most job applications or most fellowship applications or lab applications, I think filmmakers are try- are kind of encouraged to come at them from a place of confidence. Like, oh, what can I contribute to your program? Why should you want me? Here's my humble brags for years and years and years, because I think there's this, you know, this fear that, I don't know, appearing vulnerable seems very scary for an artist in the Hollywood system. But can you talk, can you color a little bit more on why, why it's so, why you're open to that vulnerability, why you encourage that? I love that you say that too, Liz, because I do think it's important that you're showcasing your confidence in yourself and your work. But in order to direct, you have to be vulnerable and you have to be really vulnerable to come in as a guest director and be in charge of everyone and get performances and run a set and be open to a million questions like, like, and you taking charge is you being vulnerable. So saying like, I don't know how, the amount of times I hear a director on set say, this is my plan. This is what I'm thinking of doing. I'm not sure if it's right. So if you have another idea, let's talk about it. Do you know how hard that is for a director to say, but that's what it takes. It does take, if you want to work in episodic, it does take you saying, I want to see a master class on managing a set as a guest director, because I don't know what that looks like. Hmm. It was interesting because the other day, one of my mentees on day one on set said to me, oh, it looks like he's really nervous about approval from the producers. And I was like, why, what, why, what's happening? And she's like, oh, well, he keeps turning around after every shot and going, was that okay? Is that, is that what you want? And I was like, that's no, that's no, that's what you have to do as an episodic director. That is every single one are going to do that. I'm most, not all takes, you know, like they'll know, they'll know if they got it. And it was a really like moment for her because she had never been in, on an episodic set to understand that, oh, I am somebody else's, you know, <laughs> I'm running somebody else's show and I am reporting to them. And I do have to say like that, is that okay? I mean, what, think about it. Most directors, they're in charge. It's their vision. And so to turn around to people and say, did you like that? Is that okay? Is is a bit unusual. That's kind of like the commercial directing or the digital space, right? There's the client, there's the producer, and then the director does need to, I'm trying to think of the word, but uh, well, collaborate would be the, the most, I don't know, creative way of putting it. But I think it's important to, I, I want to say bow, but bow feels really inappropriate. But it's revert yeah. to a grander design that you may may not always have access to. And it sounds like that's part of it, the diplomacy. Diplomacy. Um, there you go. That's a good word. The politics and the diplomacy of just, yeah, being that person for them. And can you talk a little bit about the importance or, you know, you tell us if, if you think shadowing is important. I assume you do because this is part of the program. Program. But what does shadowing do in terms of bridging the gap from these artists that you're reading applications from to these veteran directors that they become? Well, I think the most important part is that they have made this connection with this person that will likely go on and mentor them going forward and answer their questions that they can check in with them and text them and call them for advice at any point for the rest of their life. And hopefully also they become that advocate for them when they are knocking on that door. You, As you know, to get that first episode, you need like a solid eight to 10 people rallying around you saying, yes, they're ready. They can do it. 
And so I think coming out and having one more person on that list for you that says you're ready or says, you know what you need to work on is this, and here's a way to work on that. That's huge. That's huge. I mean, there's so many other reasons that shadowing is important, but building relationships, the politics of it all, of getting an episode of television, that's that's everything. How are you seeing this pro- program evolved? I mean, you already talked about the PA intensive. Is there Are there other plans for the future that you have in your noggin that are going to be implemented in the near future? I think so. I mean, we're always going to be growing and building. And I think having you know all the mentees that are alumni coming back and giving back and doing workshops and mentoring the next generation of filmmakers is always sort of the, the positive thing that nobody sees except them. But I think as we grow and evolve, like, you know, our the evolution of our program is that we are giving more opportunity to our mentees, you know, and we are sending them into a place where they're getting a job. But not only that, in terms of hiring, there's a lot more opportunity for department heads across television to take the time to make changes themselves as well. So we've really been working with department heads to help them hire with parity in mind. And by the way, most of them are already doing that, but it is like you're just used to using the same people because you like working with them and it's easy. So it's just really helping them find more resources to find more people. And then when you find that person that you know has it, you don't always have the budget to have an extra person. So we're looking at ways to do that where the department heads can have an extra person that they are mentoring up, mm-hmm. you know, that when they move up, they're going to take their position or that they'll be a viable hire on another show because they're ready and someone will take a chance on them. So I think there's a lot of like showrunners and producers and directors and writers that talk a lot about diversity through story and the hiring of directors and through actors. And I think we need to focus too a lot on crew. And I think there's a, you know, there's so many jobs. I mean, when you look on a TV set, there's like a hundred people working. There's so many jobs that like a lot of people don't realize they could do. And sometimes you don't make it as a filmmaker, but you need to see what other things you can do. There's a lot of ways to get involved in television that people aren't aware of. So by giving people more access to that and seeing that and sort of the idea of the PA program, they work in a different department each week. Just in the last couple of months, we've had one PA that went through a program is now in the camera union because that's where she felt most... She was like, I just want to work in there and and be a PA, which is they don't really have PAs in that department, but they did it. And she got enough hours to join the union. And it happened also in the props department where a girl joined the props union. and and, And you wouldn't... She wouldn't have known unless she was able to just work there as an extra PA for a week. And I think that there's a lot to be said for that. There's more work to do. In, in the ways that people don't necessarily see or can write a press release about, you know, like you, it makes me really happy when mentees come onto our sets and say like, wow, this is like a really diverse crew. This is great. Or into the production office and going, oh, I love to see all the women working. That makes me really proud too, because I know it's not just me, it's Ryan and all of his people are really working to change that. And I think for me, that's the place that I, w- I want to put a lot more focus on going forward. Final question before we do our James Lipton moment. What would you recommend? Because a lot of people who listen to this show may not get into your program and may not ever get uh, the opportunity to direct episodic. And a lot of us are 
micro budget filmmakers. And so how can we affect change on a micro budget feature set? Is that is that something you could speak to or or kind of contemplate? You know, I think just with the, the pandemic, things have changed so much in how people are shooting. And because people can make content with their even with their iPhone, it's crazy. Like the amount of things you can do. Like I think instead of talking about it, just make you know in, in making content, making content, like just continuously learning and making content is something you don't have to ask people to do. And so I think that's for, for the people that are not getting in programs or are not getting your episode, what are you doing about that? Like shoot a short film this year, get your friends together, shoot, shoot it in a day. You can make a short film in a day. Like you just need something really great that does well in the festivals. You need something really great that you can show for your application that you put as your first film. So I think just constantly creating, whether it's your iPhone or whether it's writing, whatever it is, and constantly, you know, entering all these contests and programs, you know, eventually you you will meet people, you will get there. It just takes a lot of time. And I think it's interesting because even our PAs that come in, they're like, well, someone already wants that job and the P is the PA, the writer's assistant, PA's assistant. So I don't know if I should stay here. I'm like, and they worked there for like three years before they got it. So you need to just work here for three years. And, you know, they, I think people forget that things don't happen like that. You know, like when you look at people like Issa Rae and Ryan Murphy and, you know, Shonda Rhimes, like it wasn't overnight. It, it certainly was not overnight. And so just take a step back and know that like work your day job, keep creating content, keep knocking on the door, keep getting, if you want to direct episodic, keep getting more people as your backstop that are willing to say they're ready to showrunners, to get you in front of other showrunners, producing directors, you know, executives, just keep going. I think in your head, you just have to have that mantra, like keep going. What else can I do? All right. We're on to our final six. So this is, I'm going to and I encourage you to think back, think back to Chicago oh my when, gosh. You, when you were directing or before then. What's the first film you ever made? How do you feel about it now? Oh, my gosh. It's so weird. No, it's really actually it's really amazing. You know what I did? I filmed it on a Bolex two days after 9-11. Wow. So 16 millimeter film and the city of Chicago, Columbia College is downtown Chicago. And my mom and I, my mom was living in a high rise because they sold their apartment in the suburbs. And my mom and I ran downstairs because there were fighter jets flying around the city of Chicago because they thought every city was being attacked. And two days later, we had to shoot a 30 second film on a Bolex and I, and the city was still empty. And I, I went around with that Bolex and just captured like the emptiness where there was just birds and there wasn't anything in the city. And I don't, I don't think it was very good, but I, when I watch it, I remember how I felt that day, black and white Bolex two days after 9-11. I remember lying in my bed like a night or two after 9-11 and hearing planes overhead. I remember that exact, that exact feeling. You're bringing me back. What's the best filmmaking advice or industry advice you've ever received or heard? What's your favorite industry advice? Be your authentic self. I think that's something that, you know, me personally, that's always my struggle. I feel like I need to have a front, like an Oprah front or put on a face. And I think people really enjoy working to you and respond to you more when you are your authentic self. And the biggest note I got when I was in film school was where Sherry in this. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think about that a lot in my head. And as I go in and meet people, 
you know, I'm not going to be as polished as everyone I'm around, but I'm going to be myself. So be, be your authentic self. People notice it goes a long way. What's the worst filmmaking advice, industry advice you've ever seen, witnessed, dispensed, whatever? Oh, wow. That's that's a great question. You know what? I think things have changed. And I think when people say, you know, to keep bugging someone or sending like 100 emails, I think that has changed now. You know what? I think advice that doesn't work anymore for me personally is like, oh, just keep updating them and sending them an email on your new work without addressing them as a person. Mm. So if you are doing that, if you're reaching out to your contacts without first saying, how are you? I hope, you know, how was your... Without those emails in between that just say, I hope you had a nice holiday and you're not giving them work and you're not... You you just... For, don't forget people are people. They're, they just want to sometimes be saying you to say hello and I hope you have a nice Thanksgiving or whatever it may be versus bombarding them with updates on you. So I think that a lot of panels and whatever people are like, and then I sent a hundred emails to Ava DuVernay or whatever it is. So I don't know if that's the worst advice, but I think that that's changing now. And I think it's important for people to know, to remind you that people are are human and to remember that when you're reaching out to them. Hustle culture is is receding into the background. So. It is. It is. It's true, Liz. It's true. Do you have a professional goal that you'd like to achieve? Yeah, I see. I th- I think about this all the time. I see myself as I'm going forward. I have this vision where I'm sitting as the and, and I hope it's this program. If it's, I don't know what would happen with this program. I don't know if Ryan Murphy would retire or whatever may be. But I do see myself integrating what I know and what I've learned to be the right way to do mentorship without asking for that press release or the shiny pictures. I have this vision of myself sitting in a big studio and I have a team of people executing it for me across like every show in the network, whatever that is. But I, I have that. And I feel like it's also like allows me to take care of my family and have a home in LA, the things I don't have yet. And I know that doesn't, is, isn't everything, but for me, I, I feel like that would be me like training these people to do things the way I do it and then executing on set so that we do see that change in our culture in terms of who's behind the camera. And then it provides for my family as well. Hmm. Is that so corny or what? I don't think you're far (laughs) off, Sherry. I really don't. I think you're very close to that from my vantage point. If you could go back in time, what's the piece of advice you'd give yourself? When people ask you for something, people higher up, I remember once uh, on on Californication, the the showrunner said, "I bet I, I used to make him laugh a lot and tell him crazy stories, and some of them ended up in some episodes." But I remember him saying to me one day, "I want to see something you've written," and I never gave it to him. And I think I always think about that. I'm like, "Would I have ended up a writer?" On you know what I mean? Like you, you never know. I I know I ended up in the right spot, but pay attention when people are asking you for something, give it to them and give it to them fast. Even if it's not good, even if it's bad, because they're seeing something in you and they want to see what you can do. And sometimes someone's organically trying to take you on as a mentor. And and I think pay attention to that. Yeah, I think. And I would also say, try and save more money (laughs) so that you can take moments in between gigs and feel comfortable not working. Because those are my two things. I like to take my extra money and always like go on vacation, but I think I would have split the difference. Pretty good. Is making movies and TV hard? It's really hard. 
it's really hard and it's not for everybody. It's not for everybody. And I think everyone goes on that journey to decide it. It's so hard. It is so hard. But you can tell the people that love it and hate it. There's people on set. And I would say the majority of people on set are enjoying it. And the ones that that aren't, for whatever reason, they need to get out (laughs) because it's hard work. Also, what is with the crazy hours? Like, this is insane. I don't know why we're working 12 hours. That needs to change. I think, you know, yeah, it's really freaking hard. But it's so rewarding. It's so fun. You did it. You survived. Thank you for answering our crazy questions, for talking about your program. Is there any way you want people to support you, like follow you, not email you, email you, give to charity? Just uh, what's your call to action? I love that. I love that you're ending that way. Yeah. Follow us on Instagram, half.initiative. And also think about if you haven't done it for a long time, Think about a way that you can help a friend make a film, whether it's you pay it PA for a day, you help them, if you're an actor, read the scene with a bunch of actors, give back. We're forgetting. I think we're always asking for people to help us. Don't forget to reach out to your friends and ask them, you know, how you can help them. And just because you don't feel like doing something for free, just get up off the couch, get away from your own work for a minute and help somebody else create what they're trying to create. Are you a creative who just wrapped up your independent film, new book, or album release? Or are you just looking for help on your fundraising campaign? Well, then you're going to need a marketing strategy. Smart House is a marketing agency that specializes in creative projects and independent films. They provide digital strategies, social media support, publicity services, branding, and fundraising strategies to help indie artists just like you. Smart House was founded to help indie artists with all budgets find their audience and bring their projects to the world. Smart House has helped a ton of artists reach their goals, including the Making Movies is Hard podcast. That's right. They're helping us grow our audience and they can help you too. Go to smarthousecreative.com to get started today. Liz, what was your favorite part about your chat with Sherry? Okay, well, I, I'm going to come clean about this because we're always very, very honest on the show. And why why stop now? It was a great chat. I was by myself, which is fine. You know, Auric and I are kind of doing some solo interviews every now and then. What was uncomfortable about it? And I, I don't think Sherry's ever going to listen to the podcast, but if she does, I think she knows I love her is that I have applied to the half initiative three years in a row, I believe. And so it was, and I haven't heard back about whether I'm in for this year. So it was this very interesting conversation of being in limbo, talking to the person who has, you know, a lot of the decision power for the, the fellowship lab mentorship program that you're applying to, but also not wanting to appear too sneaky about it. So I found myself playing like a weird, awkward diplomatic game with Sherry, where ultimately I just think she's the most wonderful human and really wish I could have just relaxed and had a normal conversation with her. So if you notice any stiffness, it was because I was just in my head overthinking everything while I was talking to her, worried about offending her or appearing overly aggressive the entire time. But Alric, you listen and you tell me if that even comes across. But Sherry Page is lovely and Half Initiative is lovely. Yeah, I didn't listen to the interview, which I probably should have before recording this. But yeah, that sounds interesting. I mean, do you feel like 
you asked probing questions about how they make their decisions or anything, or did you get any information out of it? Or were you worried that you were doing that and that she was going to call you out on it? Or like, was it a bit of both or? I, w- I think I was nervous that the answer to the questions was like the, the opposite of how I did my application. Like I asked questions like, who are you looking for? What's a good application? Things like that. And then when she gave the answer, I kept thinking like, is she is she saying this and then thinking of my application as the counterexample? Like I kept overthinking, <laughs> like not the questions but her answers, which doesn't uh, doesn't bode well for an interview. Like ultimately, you should be a little bit more distant, I think, and not be so yeah. interpersonally intertwined in the outcome of anything. But I still think it's a good interview. And I, I certainly encourage anyone and everyone to apply for their mentorship program or their PA intensive. And I think when you listen to Sherry, you could tell like she's such a good egg and she really believes in what she's doing. And that's really beautiful. This is going to be our most popular episode, I think, because people love episodes like this. Like the yeah. WB Writers Workshop episode was is like really high up there in our most favorite episodes. So yeah. uh, don't worry, Liz, all your insecurities will be blasted off to as many people as possible. <laughs> As no, per it's, usual. <laughs> it's funny because I feel like in a lot of ways, if, if I mean, if I was interviewing like the, the head of Sunday, uh, South by Southwest or the program director for South by Southwest or whoever is making the final decisions about the festival, you know, whatever, like, you know, submissions. Yeah, I'd probably be pretty nervous, too, especially if I, if I had a movie that I was like I was waiting to hear back. <laughs> You know? <laughs> so I can totally understand that. But I'm actually excited to, to, to hear this one. I think it'd be very interesting. But we do have a question for the game. It just came in. So we're, we're going to play it and I'm going to ask it. But uh, I'll also do a better job of saying the title of the show, of the <gasps> game. That's right. I'm supposed to give you a hard time. The game. So this is for Liz. I'm very excited about this. I haven't even read it yet, but I'm excited to read it. All right, here we go. Oh, and for people who don't know what the game is, it's a, it's a game where we basically ask each other situational questions about like you're on a movie and what if this happens what do you do you know so it's like putting you in the director's hot seat to try to solve you know an indie filmmaking problem like on the fly so liz hasn't heard this question before i actually haven't even read it all the way through because i just got it in my email just now but yeah it's gonna be really fun and uh, i'm excited to hear what liz uh, says about this so here we go you're in pre-production on an indie feature film the budget is very modest and you have to make some hard decisions as to where you'll spend your money the script calls for a big special effect it's not essential to the plot, but it'll definitely be an incredible spectacle and a real showstopper. However, your special effects supervisor tells you that it'll be very expensive and will eat into your PR budget. Do you cut the special effects budget in favor of PR, knowing that people seeing your film is the ultimate goal? Keep the special effect, hoping that the word of mouth will carry your PR, reduce your PR budget and half-ass the special effect or other. What do you do, director? What do you do? Well, we were asked a similar question a few weeks ago, right? It was like, you have the chance to do miniatures or like you have a certain amount of money. Where do you put it towards? And I and I think the reason Eric is doubling down on this question is because I was like, publicity, marketing, distribution. I'll put all my money to that, right? But what's interesting is I did make a movie with special effects without a real special effects budget, and that was Speed of Life. And we, I won't give away the company name, but we got donated visual effects. And I also know of a program at SF State, I believe, if it's, I think it's SF State, 
that also donates students learning visual effects. Like you can essentially be their semester project where they will do special effects on your film for free in exchange for them learning on the job on your film. So I think there are actually real opportunities to do labor swaps, credit swaps in the special effects world. If you network the right way, negotiate the right way, that's what we did. And so uh, my my answer is other. I'm not going to cut my PR budget and I'm going to find a way to find a new special effects company or vendor or support system who's going to help us do it for cheaper. That's that's when in exchange for a company credit on the film, producer credits, you know, whatever, you know, whatever this ridiculous game of of indie film compensation is, it would be in exchange for something that they would find valuable. What about you? Yeah, I would also do other. I feel like Special effects and, and these spectacles are really important if when they're tied to the story. So the fact that this one is not tied to the story is a really big problem for me. So what I would probably do is rewrite the movie so that the spectacle is a part of the story and is integral. And then while doing that rewrite, make it fit the budget, basically. So like, you know, try to see how I can reduce the cost of the, the gag and then but also tie it into the story where it feels very like fits well and feels rewarding as an audience member that it's like not just something that happens randomly that's not connected to the story in a major way but is actually like the big you know whatever like in scanners when the head gets exploded you know like i think like that kind of thing is so cool and when it's like really tied into like you know being like the inciting incident for a lot of the action it's super important you know or super cool you know so i feel like that's what i would do and i probably would if i had to reduce the pr budget to get the special effect right a little bit but i would try to i'd basically try to work with what i have you know without having to cut anything and then just sort of rewrite it to fit the story in a better way that's that's my take on it but yeah i mean i do feel like I don't know. It's hard because I, I just a little bit of personal connection here. Cause like, you know, my, my special effect in my movie, I'm very proud of it. I think it looks great. I'm really excited about it. It didn't win everyone over. It won mm. probably I'd say eight out of 10 people really like it in, in general, including critics. Like I think, you know, it, it works for most, but then there's some people who've called it cheesy or over the top or like just not what they wanted. And, it, and I'm not sure if that's to do with the quality of the special effect or just because that person doesn't want to see a bunch of blood at the end of my movie for whatever reason. Mm. But yeah, it just sort of made me think it's like, well, like I pulled it off on my first feature, but like, you know, if you're going to do something big like that, like you need to make it good. Like you can't just half-ass it, right? Like that's just, it's not going to, it's not worth it. Like, cause a half-ass special effect is going to hurt your movie way more than no special effect. So yeah. I think in the rewriting process, I'd be thinking about that a lot about like, okay, how can we make this something super convincing and super awesome, you know, but while, while doing, keeping it with a budget. And the thing about special effects is there's a lot of things you can do that are within budget and that don't cost very much money that are super convincing, you know, like there is, I, I mean, I, I don't remember what movie it was. I saw a movie at a film festival once and um, it's like, you know, this attack on the house and there's everybody's in the house and people are getting shot and murdered left and right. They don't have any budget to actually shoot anybody on screen. They don't have any squibs or anything. So they do this amazing thing where they have like guy coming up with a shotgun at somebody and then they pull the, then they, they you know, the, the, the hit, they hit, you know, bang. And then the camera goes like this, boop, 
up and then blood splat on the wall above. So oh. it was just somebody out of screen, just like a little blood cannon and blop, you know, right on yeah. the wall. And you're not getting anyone dirty. You're not like ruining a wardrobe. You're not having causing all these problems that like slow down production. It's just like a blood splat on the wall. And it was so effective. And I was like, it was like, whoa, holy shit. But it was cheap as shit. It was right. so cheap. And it's like that kind of stuff. I think you can think of all the time, not just with like headshots, but with all kinds of things. So right. if it's not vital to the if it's not vital to the plot, then ultimately you don't need it. Yeah. Eric, thank you for the great question. And yeah, it was amazing. You can always send us a question, comment or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Or if you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. A big thanks to the Omni Hotel for setting us up with their podcast recording booth at Austin Film Festival, which was fantastic. And a huge thank you to Colin and Travis from Austin Film Festival for all their help in making our everyone else's trip but mine a huge success. We also want you to check out the International Screenwriters Association, which is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through the programs they offer. Head on over to networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Finally, thanks to Sherry Page, the lovely Sherry Page, for coming on the show. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Rymoot, for doing all the wonderful editing. Thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for being awesome and sending us, except for me, my choice to Austin. Thanks to all of you for listening and talk to y'all next week. You didn't get a question from Eric, did you? No. <laughs> He's asleep. It's fine. We love you, Eric. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. Yeah, it's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.